This is the Chain Reaction Project. The Chain Reaction Project is a series of stories written in response to each other. A story is passed to the next writer in the chain, and they respond to it with another story, as loosely or as closely as they wish. Their story is then passed on to the next writer, and so it continues. It's a game of Chinese whispers. It's a butterfly effect. It's an insight into a moment in a person's life, a glimpse into their world, with a thread of commonality woven between the stories. This first episode contains the first six stories. The first by Lydia Thompson, performed by Joan Walker. The second by Ben Carter, performed by Ben Carter. The third by Leo Wetter, performed by David Thorpe. The fourth by Bethany Sharp, performed by Anna Nicholson. The fifth by Carla Grawls, performed by Katie Sobey. The sixth by Afsana Gray, performed by Avita J. The project is produced by Lydia Thompson and supported by Red Apple Creative. Listen closely. I didn't like it. I thought it was slow and self-indulgent and just the most pretentious piece of rubbish I'd ever seen. The lead actress was very pretty, yes, but did we really need all of that drivel about her dead husband, fiancé, blah, 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 all of that staring into the distance and wading into the water and trying to drown herself? But she was pretty, yes, she was very pretty, but how she carried on with that other man. How she cried over him as well as her dead husband, dead fiancé, the stupid little lamb. And the young girl next to me. How she cried along with her. So much crying, all that crying. I mean, was it necessary? Was it appropriate? Was it an appropriate reaction? I suppose, yes, you're quite right. You don't know what's going on in other people's lives. Other people's, you don't know what will trigger, trigger a wave of. And you could be caught in the most inconvenient place when it happens. In a lift, on the train, while having a coffee. Then whoosh. There we are then. Yes, here we are. This is how things will play out for the next hour, the next couple of hours, the next while, anyway. I suppose the cinema is a relatively safe, all that darkness. Hold the big sobs, the really big sobs, for the louder moments, though, eh? The really big howls. Oh, it's okay, don't worry. The girl next to me, she wasn't howling as such. Just shuddering, juddering, breathing forcefully, purposefully. She was very polite about it. Well, when I got out of there, out of the cinema, I just went for a bit of a walk, you know, just a bit of a walk. All of that grief is very tiresome. Talk of death, visions of death, blah, blah, you know. Just gets to you a bit. Just seems to sit quite plaintively at the top of your lungs. Well, anyway, so I went for a bit of a walk. The sun was getting relatively low now. Yes... A little bit colder in the air. My jacket a little bit closer. It's a little looser now, you see. Only a little, not by much, but enough. Just so that I notice the chill in the breeze. Walk far enough, though, for long enough, and it's all fine, really. All fine, in the end. I passed the cafe where I had been supposed to meet my friends earlier today. I had gone to the cinema instead, you see. Just snuck off, just turned off my phone and whoop. About turned away from the cafe and saw whatever was at the cinema. So I hurried by the cafe just in case, in case they were still in there. You never know. They do love to talk. 
Oh, Judy, how she does love to talk. My son, my grandson, my great-niece, my good grief, she does love to talk. Sometimes Rose and I look at each other from across the table and that's enough, that says it all. We've been friends a long time, you see, a long time. She'll understand, I suppose. I think. She's very understanding. Today just wasn't the day, you know, not the day. It was indeed the day for respectful, quiet sobs in a cinema. Alone, you see, solitary. Solitary rumination on a topic without talks of husbands and children and neighbours that lead to nowhere. Nowhere but polite laughter and a subsequent story that advances on the theme, the topic at hand. The young! How music has changed. Whether the internet is a good or bad thing or somewhere in between. And then someone inevitably says, we'll be dead before then anyway, and we all laugh. Every week we all laugh every week. I've taken to drinking my coffee instead, instead of laughing. My own personal drinking game. Whenever someone mentions death, you have to drink. I wondered about getting Rose in on the game, but for now it's rather fun on my own. I played it during the film with my glass of wine. When they showed the pretty girl's husband actually dead, actually flat against the trench wall with blood on his chest pouring out of his chest, that was a big one, a big gulp. I giggled a little. I did. Not a laugh, no, a giggle. The girl next to me, she shuddered, of course. She'll get used to it. Little lamb. So where was I? Oh yes, walking past the cafe, where I was supposed to meet my friends. Well, they weren't there, actually, as it happens. They weren't there. Maybe someone had to be somewhere, or heaven forbid, they ran out of things to talk about. I thought about popping in just to make sure. They might have sat somewhere else, you see, not in the usual spot. I would hide behind a pillar, keep out of sight, of course. I wouldn't want to join them, wouldn't want them to hold up their arms and say, Jane, how gorgeous, we thought you weren't coming, thought you wouldn't make it, come on over. No, none of that, no, thank you, no, absolutely not. But as it happens, I didn't go in anyway, didn't risk it. So, so I kept walking, yes. Ruminating, yes, solitary rumination. And that was kind of it for me, actually, in the end. The cinema, then the walk, the small walk, then home. I picked up something for dinner, one of those make-it-yourself jobs, you know. One of those where they give you all the ingredients ready mixed and you just put it all in a frying pan and cook up your own rice or pasta or potatoes or whatever. A meal for two, actually, but pop some in the freezer or the fridge for another time. And I got some figs to snack on for the way home, of course. But yes, it just wasn't the day for it, not today. Because some days are better than others, and some days I bounce, bound, skip, out into the, you know. And other, other days... Well, I guess what it was, was the wine the night before. We used to drink it all the time, you see. Oh, him and I could sink a bottle and a half, two bottles, and say, Oh, because it is so delicious, so drinkable. And he'd remark at how funny it was to refer to a wine as 
Drinkable, as opposed to what? As opposed to what? He'd say. And he'd pour me another glass and we'd watch the TV and occasionally look out of the window and make little comments about this or that. And I'd light a candle or he would light a candle. And in the chill of the evening I'd fetch the blankets or he would fetch the blankets. And yes, we'd occasionally look out of the window and I'd say, oh darn, I should bring the washing in. And he'd say, leave it, it's not due to rain anyway. And we'd continue to sit until it was late or later than it was already. And then it was time for bed and we'd turn out the lamp and blow out the candle and take turns in the bathroom. And I'd put the wine glasses beside the sink or he'd put the glasses beside the sink and we'd take turns to say, we'll do them in the morning. The make-it-yourself meal for two. We'd clear up the pans in the morning and yes, and go to bed. He'd have loved my little drinking game. He'd have found it funny. Dead funny, he'd probably say. Anyway, yes, it was probably just the wine I had the night before that brought on the cinema and the walking. All their stories and laughing and the same routine. The my husband, my son, my grandson, my great-niece stories. And we'll be dead before then anyway, comments. Just leave me cold. Just sting a little. It, it all just seems to sit quite plaintively at the top of your lungs. Tomorrow will be better, I suppose. I suppose. Anyway, yes. Well, anyway. I wake up late again with a hangover. Although not late enough, frankly. My internal bully won't let me go back to sleep. It seems I've once again been weak and allowed my anxieties to get the better of me and must be punished. I'm picked up slightly by the remembrance that I enjoy walking the deserted streets on a day like today. There are too many people in this city. Too many foreigners. Not that I'm racist, no. It's just everyone's different, other. We don't see ourselves. We're just confronted with faces of confusion on lost visitors and faces of anger on those who come here to earn their living. Locals, I suppose. Whatever they are. Coffee. The first hit of the day. This new thought gives me impetus and gets me up and out of bed. I stand for a moment looking at Clothes. Clothes on the chair where I placed them the night before. Clothes on the floor that I must have removed during the night when I became too hot. Always too hot. And of course, clean clothes hanging up. I should have a shower and put on something clean. Fuck that, I'm going to treat myself. Have a day off. It's not like I'm going to be interacting with anyone I actually care about. Outside is weird. There's a fog wrapped around my brain. I wonder how long I can avoid talking to someone. But I know I'll have to talk to someone at some point to get what I want. So I cling to the train tracks of routine, the lines that lead inevitably into the heart of London's West End, the exciting cultural hub that drew me in all those years ago. 
my favourite coffee shops are closed. It seems even hipsters haven't decoupled themselves completely from old-fashioned values when it comes to Christmas. Pret is open. Pret is always open. I go in and spot the Pret Christmas sandwich, a century of contrived culinary tradition and seasonal marketing between two bits of triangular bread. I stare at it and imagine taking a photo of it and putting it on Facebook and then watching the likes accrue at my ironic, miserable, festive lunch. But it's not really ironic, and that makes me feel sad. So I decide it's time for a pint. It's gone two in the afternoon, and I reckon a couple of Guinness... Guinnesses... What's the plural of Guinness? Anyway, I decide that would lead nicely into tea time telly, smoked salmon and fizzy wine. It's the only part of my family Christmas I miss. Probably because the oily fish and buttered bread is such a good accompaniment to the astringent biscuity dryness of the carver. Anxiety lifts and I strike out in my search for a cosy pub, the sort of thing that served gin when Dickens lived round here. Pubs are different today. They've changed the rules, put linen cloths on the tables. don't want to go to my local pub because I don't want to confirm that I'm totally alone, a total loser, and what you might term an alcoholic. Like they give a fuck. I pay their wages and listen to their codependent bullshit, so I go directly there. I often think that the soporific effect of a pint of beer must be akin to the first hit of heroin. If you've done a lot of heroin, I mean, imagine the first time is quite pukey. Once I had escaped the first time, I had to start again. Years of work had been wasted. Thousands of miles covered were now rendered purposeless. The original conveyor, so stable and well-maintained, had been abandoned during my capture. Its contents stolen, its unrecoverable contents. They have it all now. The only satisfaction I have is that it is undecodable. The keys that could release that information are in my head. They weren't able to get those out of me. Never will. So I begin again. But this time knowing that my time hadn't been wasted. I had learned things over those years. Processes so inefficient and random seeming at first have been honed and regularised. I can get to where I was in half the time, less probably, and continue beyond. The miles the old conveyor notched up are recorded, uh, an estimate only, but I like to think pretty accurate. You'll find the figure in Book 8, page 53, column F, line 12. Uh, the working out is in another book. I could find it if you like, but it's not important. When I think of all the mistakes I made early on, I could cry. So inefficient. I'd retrieve all kinds of irrelevant material. Books, shoes, a pot plant once, for God's sake. I can't believe the time I wasted on coffee cups. I used to collect them all, but soon realised that Costa, Starbucks, those kind of ones were utterly irrelevant. It was only the prep ones that were valuable, and only a particular style, a squarer lip and a less pigmented purple. Categorise, subdivide and subdivide again. It was the only rational way to get to the truth. 
but it was a red herring. I collected 729 of those Pret Cups. I studied each one, compared them with each other. It gradually became clear they were of no use. I must have been misdirected somewhere. They're very clever, these people. It only takes a suggestion by one of them. You never know who they might be, and the seed is planted in your mind. And it grows, and it becomes an obsession. And all along, it's the wrong tree. I wear headphones now, so people can't talk to me. There's no music, but they don't know that. It means that I can eavesdrop and they don't realise. The headphones were very easy to get. So many get thrown away every day, and I don't need working ones. I could have as many as I want, really. This week, I've been mostly wearing the white Beats ones. I can fit about three more smaller ones around my neck as spares, and there are a dozen more in the conveyor. This conveyor isn't as good as the old one, but things aren't as well made anymore, are they? The front nearside wheel seems slightly misaligned, and I have to apply butter to it occasionally to reduce the squeak, but it does have a larger capacity, and I need it to fit in what I now recognise to be how they are communicating newspapers, principally the business section. Monday mornings are a good time to collect because of the number of Sunday papers, the quality ones. I realised, I hope not too late, that there was little of value in the tabloids. The Sun, Mirror, Express, Mail, etc. have the incorrect paper. It's an easy way to differentiate. So I have to focus. There is some use to the observer, but they're quite rare unless you go to certain areas. Stoke Newington, for example, but I rarely visit these days. I stay west now, Holland Park, Kensington. The recycling bins tend to be cleaner too. There are a few scattered addresses which provide the most best stuff, Financial Times and Sunday Times business section. If I collect them at dawn, then I know nobody can have got to them before me and taken them or altered them to misguide me. They're cunning. I have to stay at least one step ahead. I can't rest. I have to keep moving. Moving. Because they'll catch up with me again one day and I'm not as strong as I was. I may not be able to escape a second time. But if I go, there are others. I've seen them. Many more recently. We quietly acknowledge each other when our paths cross. We know. Soon, we'll know it all. There is a pointlessness which pervades all things. That's what the first page of my book said. That's what I saw, first thing this morning. I'd picked up a new book from the bookshop yesterday as I'd headed home, and I'd picked it up in preparation for today. Today, was the day which I'd chosen yesterday to be the day when I restarted my life. So, I'd picked up a new book with the intention of it being the first thing which I would interact with on this first day of my new life. It's all very well waking up on the first day of a new life, but you run a serious risk of just lying there in bed and thinking, what's new? So, I had bought the book as a firelighter, as a first point of response. What could be more inspiring than a book, I thought, 
Not only that, but by its nature of being a compendium of thousands of words, all arranged in combinations of meaning, each combination inviting a variety of interpretations by the reader. What, I ask you, my friend, what, I ask you again, what, I ask you a third time, could be more potentially inspiring than a book? A book! To start my new life, a book. One sentence, one book, one moment in time to restart my life. Before you ask, yes, I was desperate. What a stupid question. If you're wanting to change, you need to allow yourself to be changed. And as there was nothing beyond the motivation to change within my consciousness, I thought I would meet the impulse halfway by providing myself with a random impetus. Sorry, that's not that you're a stupid person. You're not a stupid person at all, I'm almost sure of it. Neither is the question in and of itself stupid. In this particular situation, however, asking that question does surely appear to be completely pointless, as I assume you know the answer, and it therefore feels slightly insensitive that you persisted in asking it regardless. Of course I was desperate. I have learnt not to anticipate. To anticipate is to kill the moment before it has even become an event. So, I did not choose the book. I picked up the book, hardly noticing the title. It was a blue book with white typeset on the cover, and it was a paperback. The bookshop assistant slid it into a paper bag whilst I had my head down at the chip and pin, and then I carried it home. Sorry, going back again... I doubt that you're an insensitive person, really. It's a thoughtful thing to ask, really. Were you really that desperate? You could have asked, were you really that mad? Yet you didn't. I heard the sympathy buried deep in the question as you asked it, and I'm very appreciative of it. Thank you. The book lay beside my head all night, and when I woke this morning, I reached my right hand over my body curved my hand towards my left shoulder and picked up the book on the first day of my new life. I opened the book. There is a pointlessness which pervades all things. It wasn't quite the start I wanted for my new life, I'll be honest. Of all the sentences, of all the books, really, what a pointless exercise it had been which the book itself would agree with me about. Sorry, that thank you earlier may have sounded a bit sarcastic. It wasn't meant to be. After reading the first disappointing sentence, I put down the book and I lay in bed looking at the ceiling, waiting for something to happen. Nothing did. So I kept looking at the ceiling. It could have come crashing down on me, but it didn't. Nothing exciting happened at all, so I eventually got up. Yes, you may be sitting there, or standing there, or running along the road, listening to me and thinking, what on earth did she expect? Well, dear listener, I may well ask the same question of you. What did you expect? Did you expect me to tell you a great tale of how I came across the elixir of my life? The ideal treasure map? The self-written, self-help book of how I restarted my life? 
If you've got a better idea as to how to restart a life in 50 seconds before you get out of bed, please do tell me. And please don't say take up exercise. You may be saying that because that worked for you and that's splendid, honestly. Yet you must admit that's really more of a hobby, isn't it? It's not an existential moment of understanding which would spur me on to a better life, is it? So today has been an incredibly usual day, given that it was meant to be the first day of my new life. I have been to work, interacted in the usual way with the limited circle of people I work with, and I have now returned home, by the same route via the bookshop which I stopped at yesterday, from which I bought the overwhelmingly pointless book. Now let's get one thing clear. I wasn't looking for instant happiness. There's no such thing. Certainly not instant happiness. And come to think of it, I'm a bit doubtful about what happiness is anyway. Other than a carrot to bait humanity with. No, no. Neither did I expect a miracle. Not my style. Never let it be said that by buying the book and reading a sentence from it that I expected an angel to come trooping out of my wardrobe and a genie to fly out of the speakers on my iPhone. All I asked for, believe me, was a little inspiration. I stopped again at the bookshop today, but I didn't buy a book. Instead, I stood there with all the books surrounding me and I looked round as you do when you look at a great landscape or as you do when you look out to sea. All these words, and I'd pick the ones which had declared all of the rest intrinsically pointless. How dare it? How dare it? There is a pointlessness which pervades all things. The arrogance of that sentence. It has denied all valid meaning to all things except itself and the meaning it declares. Why are you listening to me? No, no, don't tell me yet. I haven't quite finished, I'm afraid. Why are you listening to me? I shall tell you why. Because you trust that I have a point to make. Which, indeed, I do. I found it this morning. Whoever wrote that damn sentence, he, and it is a he, I checked the front of the book, he fully believed in what he was saying. He wrote down that preposition. There is a pointlessness which pervades all things. So really? Really, sir? That's what you've concluded, is it? You've decided that you were able to call all things pointless and yet have the confidence to put a sentence to that effect down in writing. A sentence which demands that the reader understand the meaning behind the sentence in order to make sense of the sentence and to understand the point of view of the writer. The writer thinks that his point has enough meaning with which to propel itself from his mind into his fingers and onto the page. Why are you listening to me? Well, because I started speaking, I suppose. You're welcome. I crossed out the sentence in the book and above it wrote the following. By the nature of there being things, there is a pointfulness which pervades all things. You get a lot of them in here. Browsing. You looking for anything in particular? No, I'm just browsing. We wouldn't ordinarily ask. We had to move the books, of course. They used to be in the back, tucked away in shame, 
where no right-minded book snob would stumble upon them. You know the ones, the ones that did English lit at uni, the ones who work in bookshops, the ones like me. You can see them, the book snobs versus the self-helpers. We tried to put them as far away from each other as possible so that the book snobs' cultivated disdain wouldn't infect the relentless positivity of self-help and the relentless positivity of self-help wouldn't offend the book snobs' cultivated disdain. It's a hard job, but you know. However, however, there's a problem with self-help. It attracts a certain kind of, how shall we say, customer. The browsing customer. Well, of course you're welcome to browse. Of course you're welcome. That's what bookshops are for, right? So you can browse and then buy it cheaper on Amazon. Yeah, we know. We see you furtively checking the price on Amazon on your phones. We see it all. But this is a different kind of browsing customer. When they walk into the shop, it's an event. It's the woman who feels earthquakes every five minutes. It's the guy with a rotten leg who wants to talk about Marianne Williamson. It's the man who stands in front of the bookshelf with his eyes closed, paused, deep breathing, palms outstretched. And you say, Are you looking for anything in particular, sir? And he says, No, I'm waiting for the right book to speak to me. And so we wait for the right book to speak up. You know, these things take time. You know, it takes time for books to find their voices. You know, it takes time for a book to develop a voice and call out to its human customer. You know, it takes time. When you know, you just know. And so you watch. And wait. And the human customer, he keeps listening, all his ear holes open, even the spiritual ones. And we watch. A sigh passes from my colleague a mutterance from myself, and we wait, and we wait, and the guy still has his eyes closed, and we get bored and we start talking, talking about the art book which features a penis hat, and wouldn't my colleague like to model a penis hat for his esteemed colleague, myself, and he says, no, where do you get a penis hat anyway, and I say, well, make one, and he says, what, with a real penis, and I say you could always borrow one, and he says, from who? And I say, it doesn't matter as long as you make it happen. He is deep in thought, my colleague, thinking about how to make this happen. And our guy, our man, has opened his eyes. And we say, well, did it speak to you? Not today, he says. Not today. Then he walks out, seemingly dejected. Seemingly. Seemingly browsing. Okay, so I know you're not making the connection, right? I mean, who would? It's so unexpected. But is it? A young woman comes into the shop. You can see she's recently been searching for herself. The signs are all there. The hair, the clothes, the gait. It's all affectedly different. People in bookshops always wear their affectations. It's as plain as day. They saunter, they swagger, or they sashay in and you just know the book they're looking for. Donna Tart, a Harry Potter, Da Vinci Code, books with made-up maps. Don't even have to tell us, we're already pointing you in the direction of your spot in the bookshop. And they look at you like, how do you know? Well, because you're not as individual as you think, unfortunately. 
and is the way you dress. Metal t-shirts? Fantasy. Spectacles? Literary fiction. Someone with muscles? Buying a gift. And then there are the self-helpers. Either extremely ordinary or extraordinarily extreme. One or the other. Never in between. So the young woman, she comes into the shop and we're pointing self-help and there she goes. And there she browses. And we know she's going to be a while because how do you choose the book that will change your life? Do you pick at random, believing everything happens for a reason? Do you close your eyes, consult your spirit animal, decipher its bark, growl or cluck, and then are guided to it? Or do you just get on the Amazon recommendations? It's difficult for the self-helpers, you see. Their decision-making process is as important, if not more important, than the actual book. It needs to have meaning. The action of plucking the book from the shelf needs to have meaning. It needs to be a revelation. The beginning of the rest of your life. And as my colleague and I watch and wait, talking about penis hats, he stifling burps, me stifling existential angst, we wait for the browser to bring their life-changing purchase to the counter. Truth be told, only the ones who check their Amazon recommendations bring their potentially life-changing purchases to the till. We can spot those who still have a foot in reality. The others, well, we keep a close watch. A very close watch. So much so, we move the self-help section right next to the till. And my colleague and I break in our talk of hats to watch, but pretend not to watch. Because last stock take... Looking for those elusive, too elusive titles. It happens every time. So this young woman, my colleague spotted the telltale signs, like this was one to watch, and as we conversed we knew what was about to take place. So we did our spiel, pretending not to watch, and my colleague turns to me to demonstrate something, and I see it over his shoulder. And it's on. I give him the nod. And there's a silent agreement as we decide who's going to do it. There's a silent, accelerated rock-paper-scissors. Him, me, him, me, him, me, him. Excuse me, miss. She looks startled. Excuse me, but... She starts making her way to the exit. And he follows. Excuse me, but... And she breaks into a run. And I run to the window to watch. And she runs and he gains. And he tries not to touch her, but... Well, he does. And she spins around and he touches her breast, and she flings him off, and he touches her again, and she's like, get away! And he's like, sorry, but... And people are starting to gather. And this is the part I like best. He goes in, and suddenly they're grappling, and everyone is watching, and there are calls of, get your hands off her, you brute! Woman hater! Call the police! And he's quick. He's nimble, my colleague. Oh, so nimble. He does it. He holds the book aloft, sequestered from her inside jacket pocket. Who knew? She looked like such a nice girl. Who knew? Well, we did. Because the reason the self-help is now next to the till and the reason we keep a close watch is because people mistake it for help yourself. She said it slipped her mind. She forgot to pay. She comes back in and does her chip and pin and she can't look at us pretending to find something very interesting in the gift books on the counter. There's never anything that interesting in the gift books, except perhaps for those with muscles buying a gift for their friend who reads. But we know. 
we always know. It's always the ones who feel the earthquakes. It's always the ones who read Marianne Williamson. It's always the ones looking for the beginning of the rest of their lives. You can see it in their eyes. And you know. You just know. I'm staring at the pavement and walking as slowly as I can, but I keep getting jerked along by Mum. I'm trying not to walk on the lines. It's my thing. She knows it's my thing, but she's pulling at my hand and then I stumble and step on the lines. There's no point if you keep stepping on the lines. I look up instead, because if I'm going to make a mess of this, I don't want to see how much of a mess. It's morning, but you can still see the moon. I've just turned ten. I think about my telescope that Dad sent to our flat for my birthday and how if you go onto the balcony and look at the moon through the telescope, you can see craters on the surface. It makes it look real, like something you could step on. I'd like to go up there in a rocket and an astronaut suit, but that's already been done and they won't bother doing it again because it wasn't that great the first time. That's what Mum said. She says they'll go to Mars next, even though it's so far away it would take years and they might never come back. And when I said, maybe I'll go there then, she said, great, you should. And I don't think she'd even care if I did. Mum's angry. I don't know if she's angry with me or with Dad or with both of us. I stop looking up at the sky because I catch this woman looking at me like either I've got some kind of physical disability or Mum's being neglectful and abusive, or both. I look at the woman and smile but she looks away. When I was younger, adults would smile at me for no reason. Now this one doesn't even smile when I smile at her first. I've got fat and old. Mum says I'll grow out of the fat, but I think I've always been a bit fat. It's just when I was younger, people thought it was cute. Mum said Dad left because he met another woman. She said he likes the other woman more than he likes her and that's because the other woman's a whore and she bets they're going at it like rabbits and she never had a decent sex life with him but she just put up with it because that's what you do, isn't it, when you have kids and now she'll probably never have a decent sex life because she's missed her chance. Then she said, I shouldn't be telling you this, you're too young. But I think it's good because... Now I know what the problem is, maybe I can tell Dad and Dad will realise his mistake and come back. All the other kids at school talk about their dads like they're great and teach them how to ride a bike and have cool jobs. But I never rated mine much. I miss him now, though. He doesn't walk so fast, pull me along and make me step on the lines. And he got me the telescope, which is my favourite thing that I've ever got from anyone. And the best thing about it is that even when the lights are off in your room and you're supposed to be asleep, you can still use it. In fact, it's better that way. I haven't seen Dad in a while. Mum says he's not that bothered about me. That he can take me or leave me, but she had to carry me in her belly for nine months so she can't do that. She says I shouldn't have kids and I shouldn't get married. And the other day she tried to throw out all my princess dresses that I've had since I was little because she said that whole thing was a myth that's bad for you, like coke is bad for your teeth. 
I cried, and then she stopped throwing out the dresses and hugged me until I thought I was going to collapse into a neutron star. It's not that I wear those dresses anymore. I'm too old for them. But they're part of my past. They make me feel nostalgic, so I don't want her to throw them out. I explained that to her, and she cried, even though I didn't think it was that sad. She's dragging me across the road when the man's red, not green. A car beeps. This older woman who's waiting on the other side looks at Mum like she should go to prison, and as we pass, she mutters, irresponsible. I want to be invisible, but I can't throw a blanket over my head and disappear like I could when I was little. Dad used to say Mum was mad. When she shouted at him for getting home from work late or wearing funny perfume, he'd say, she's mad. Your mum's mad. He said, don't turn out like your mum. And now she says, don't turn out like your dad. I don't want to be mad. I keep whacking into people. She says we're going to be late. She says she doesn't want to give him the satisfaction. Suddenly she stops. We're almost there, she says. Suddenly she puts on her nice voice. I'll pick you up at six and I'll get us pizza. What do you think? I've gone off pizza. We've been having it every other night since Dad left but I let her think I'm excited about it. I love you, she says, and she sounds like she's about to cry. She's squashing me into a neutron star again when she sees something behind me. I look around and there's this man chasing a woman down the street and then he grabs her right on the chest area and she screams something and mum leaves me and runs over saying none of them can keep their hands to themselves and I just stay where I am because I don't want to make a scene. The man doesn't leave the woman alone, even though she's shouting, get away. And a little crowd has gathered, including mum, and they're watching him, and someone's calling the police. But then he grabs something out of her coat pocket, a book, and holds it up in the air like he's really pleased with himself. The crowd of people look surprised and disappointed and they start talking to each other very quietly like they just found out a secret. Good thing I did call the police, says the man who called the police. I go a bit closer to see what the book is that the woman was carrying because maybe that will explain why the man was so bothered about it. It's called Act Like a Lady, Think Like a Man. Subtitle a guide for navigating the five stages of dating to create a loving and lasting relationship. I don't get it. But after that, the woman stopped screaming and they walked together to a bookshop, her a little bit ahead of him. Mum comes back and grabs me by the hand again, jerks me along angry again. I asked her what happened, but she doesn't answer. I don't know why, but I feel sad. We get around the corner and I see Dad, waiting in the car that used to be Mum and Dad's car that they shared, but now it's just Dad's car. He's on his own, which is good, because I was scared he was going to bring the whore and I didn't know what I would say to her. He gets out of the car. He looks really good, tanned like he's been on holiday. 
He's had a haircut. He gives me a smile and holds out his arms. I run to him. I'm too big for him to pick up, but he bends down and gives me a hug. Just the right kind of hug, not too tight, but like he means it. He opens the door for me like I'm a proper lady, and he says he missed me, and how am I? And I say, I love the telescope you got me. You can see the craters on the moon with it. I want to go up there someday and go for a walk, except Mum says it's pointless because it's already been done and it wasn't that special, so maybe I'll go to Mars instead. And he says, of course you can go to the moon. If that's where you want to go, you can go anywhere you want. Then he leans over and kisses me and he starts the car and we go off to get some ice cream. I don't look back.